Good morning. I can already see the relief on some of y'all's faces. It's the youth guy. He's going to preach short, and we get to go home early, right? Yeah. Oh, Travis, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I paid all my youth a dollar to laugh at my jokes this morning, so I appreciate it. No, I get it. Shannon's the, the smart one, and uh, I'm fast and funny, so hopefully I'll be able to, uh, to meet those requirements for you guys this morning. Um, most of y'all know, when I told my story last, uh, last time that I spoke, for those of you that don't know, I'm, I'm Ryan Weed. I'm the student pastor here. Um, but when I told my story, I talked a lot about um, my time in the military. Um, I'm 33 years old. I spent eight years in the Marine Corps, and so a good bit of my life um, was uh, in the service. And so a lot of my analogies, a lot of my stories are going to come from my time in the military. Um, in order to become a Marine, in order to earn the title, you have to make it through 13 weeks of recruit training. Part of that 13 weeks um, is being molded by a Marine Corps drill instructor. Um, Marine Corps DIs are unique creatures. And I say creatures because they really aren't human beings, okay? Um, and I don't say that as an insult. Most drill instructors would actually probably like, that's a badge of honor for them, right? They want to be these kind of mythical creatures. Um, but part of them uh, molding and instructing young recruits is uh, a training tool they like to call playing games. Now, uh, some drill instructors will say they have more games than Milton Bradley. Um, we're not talking about Yahtzee. We're not talking about Monopoly here. Um, the games that we're talking about generally are kind of meant to distort, confuse, torment, and instill discipline in the young recruits. One of the games that they like to play um, involves instructing the platoon to hold out an object in front of them. And so picture 80 young men, uh, shoulder to shoulder, arms fully extended, and the drill instructor would pick some sort of object that the um, recruit would need to hold out in front of them. Typically, it was the service rifle, because you always had it with you. It was an easy thing to, to tell them to use. And at just over eight pounds, that service rifle would become heavy very, very quickly. But sometimes the DI would have a little bit more time and a little bit more flexibility, and he'd want to heap a little bit more humility on us. And so he would have us use just a sheet of paper. Now, here's the thing with a sheet of paper. It doesn't weigh anything, okay? It's light. It's, it's, it's nothing. But if you hold a sheet of paper out in front of you long enough, it starts to take on the characteristics of a 20-pound weight. And so what happens is, is as your arms are extended, you start to feel your, your shoulders start to burn a little bit. And you start to do this thing where you, you want to keep it straight up, but your body kind of starts to distort, and you're, you're just trying to be the last person really not to drop that sheet of paper. Um, because the moment that you do, if you're the first one, you're going to have a swarm of drill instructors on you reminding you that that sheet of paper doesn't weigh anything. I think sin works the same way in our lives, right? I think that um, something starts out as nothing. It starts out as this really small thing, and then over time, we find ourselves um, trying to overcompensate, and we find ourselves becoming uncomfortable and distorting our lifestyles in order to hold up something that at the very beginning, at the very onset, was nothing. And so this morning, what I want to do is, is I want to kind of break down the anatomy of sin. I want to look at um, what that process looks like. Um, if I was to ask 10 people in this room to kind of define sin for me, we'd probably come up with a few different answers. Some people would just lift off, list off some of the really good ones like drunkenness or sexual immorality, drinking, cussing, fighting, right? Chewing tobacco. Pick a country western song, okay? You would be able to list off a few of what some of those sins are. 
Um, what we see, though, when we look in the book of Genesis, which is where we're going to be this morning, is we actually see that sin is much more of a progression. We see that it's not an individual um, action or a, an individual siloed contained thing, that it's actually something that speaks to the core of who we are. And so if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles um, to Genesis 3, that's where we're going to be this morning. The word sin comes from the Greek uh, hamerteia, and it means to miss the mark. So think of an archer that is trying to hit a target that misses. Um, it also means, there's another uh, definition of it that means that it could be a hero's tragic flaw. I think both of those definitions are pretty correct. I know that I associate with both of them. Um, I know that sin is my tragic flaw. Um, and so, uh, but we're going to focus a little bit on what that process looks like and um, separating it from those individual tasks. So if you're in Genesis, we're going to start off in verse 3. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background leading up to this. Um, most of y'all have read this. Anybody that has said, hey, I'm going to read the Bible, usually makes it to about middle of Genesis before they go, okay, I don't even know what I'm reading. I'm, I'm starting over, right? So you at least normally get the first few chapters down. We've, we've known about creation. Up to this point, we've seen God has made the earth, and he said that it's good. He's made the heavens, he's made the earth, he's made man, and he's made woman, and they're living in perfect harmony with God. And God at this point has basically instructed them that you can have all this stuff, but there's one tree. There's one tree that I want you to not eat from. Now, if you're a parent, at some point, you've probably had your child come up to you and say, well, why, was the, why is the tree there? Why, if God is all-knowing, why does the tree even exist? And I, it doesn't explain that to us in Scripture, but here's my own personal take on it. I think that the tree exists because we wouldn't have had perfect freedom without the tree being there. God giving Adam and Eve the option to choose is, is opening up the door for them to be able to have that freedom of behavior. And so starting in verse 3, what we see is, is we see the serpent, Satan, has uh, come and approached the woman in the garden. And we start, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So what we see here is we see temptation starts out as this small little seed of doubt for Eve, right? This question gets posed to her, and um, we know that it's not true, right? We know that what the serpent is saying is, you know, can you eat of none of the trees? And basically Eve is saying, no, we can eat of any of the trees. We just can't eat of this one tree. But Eve has already started to sow a certain level of distrust because what you see her do in this is add to what God has told her. See, Scripture didn't tell us that God told Eve that she couldn't touch the tree, said that she couldn't eat it. But what has happened is, is a little bitty morsel of doubt has started to leave Eve, lead Eve into a certain level of distrust. Now, I've talked to a few people recently whose families are starting to fall apart. And it seems like one of the common things that I hear is usually doubt and distrust. It's one of the first reactions. And they use it as a way of justifying their actions. They basically say uh, things like, oh, I don't think that uh, God wanted me to be in this relationship. He didn't want me to be married to this person because this person doesn't make me happy. And Joe Olstein told me that God wants me to be happy. So I know I need to be happy, right? That's what God wants. So I start to doubt where God has put me, and I start to put distrust in the fact that God is sovereign enough to know the things that I need. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to uh, tackle a small elephant in the room, okay? Adam has been here the whole time, all right? Adam hasn't spoken up. Adam hasn't said anything, right? The man of the relationship, the first maid, has sat passively by while the woman has been tempted, and he's done absolutely nothing aside from take what she's given her and eaten it. Now, I'm going to save this because this is a whole other sermon, I think, all by itself, but little side note, gents, if this isn't the best example of how not to lead your family, I don't know what is. Moving on. So Eve sees the tree. She likes it. She's appealed to her desires now. That, that doubt and that distrust has led to these desires, and she sees what she wants. And this starts to lead her into the path of disobedient action. It's a quick jump. We started this in verse 3. We're in verse 5, and we've already gotten to a point to where this little bitty tiny thing has led Eve to the cusp of the fall of mankind. Our entire separation from God has happened in these first couple of verses. And then now she's taken the step into disobedient action. Now here's the deal, and this is gonna be kind of the, the point that I'm gonna argue this morning. I think that it's already too late for Eve at this point, okay? She's already gotten to the action of committing the sin, but I think that if we as a church are going to improve, if we are going to start being able to turn the tide on sin controlling our lives, then we have to start to recognize sin before it gets to this point, right? Before we get to the disobedient action. Um, we like it there though, right? We like to think of sin as this siloed off, compartmentalized thing, okay? Because it's easy for us to grade that. It's easy for us to have a metric on our sin in our life if we separate ourselves from it, right? Sin is list your topic, chewing tobacco, fighting, cussing, whatever it was we, we talked about earlier, right? Pick that particular item and that's what sin is, but that's not who I am. But the truth is, is, is we aren't sinners because of our sin. We aren't sinners because of our disobedient action. We do those disobedient actions because we are sinners. It's who we are fundamentally at our core because of this that's taking place here in Genesis. It's the reason why we need Jesus to make us holy because there's nothing that we can or cannot do in order to get there. Verse seven, it says, the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, little side note, and this is just me in my mind as I start to read through Scripture and try to picture things on my own. I picture Adam and Eve in, in a state of frantic behavior here, right? They realize that they've done something wrong, and so they start collecting all of this stuff to try to cover up whatever they've done, right? And at this point, the Lord God walks up on them. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. All right, now you can't help but laugh here a little bit because this is the God of all creation, right? That they are in the presence of. He has made everything, but they try to hide from him in a tree that he created, okay? Like, what are they thinking? It's, it's mind-blowing behavior, but we do the same things, right? We start to think that if we can compartmentalize these individual tasks and we can tuck them away and nobody knows about them, if nobody's caught us, then those things must not be real. God must not see these things because nobody else knows about them. I can't help but think of 12-year-old me, all right? My dad's sitting here this morning. Um, there are times that I would have done something wrong, 
And my dad would have come to me the same way God has gone to Adam and Eve, and he'd say, hey, did you do this? And he knew. He knew what I had done. But I'd say, nope. Mm-mm. No, I don't know who did it. Kevin did it, probably. I saw him do it, actually, right? I would, I would completely try to say, I would try to say no. But the truth eventually comes out right? Eventually, he tells me that he's busted me. And right here, what we see is we see that God already knows, that God has already seen the sin that they've committed. Verse 9, it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Two questions, actually three, that God has asked here that he already knows the answer to. He knows all of these things that they've already done. And so the man said, I love this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she, she's the reason, right? And you're the reason for giving her to me, right? The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, here's what I like. I like that God, even knowing that Eve was the one that had done this, right? He still calls out to the guy first, right? Captain Passive is now put on the stand to be accountable for what he's done. Now, um, another little side note here. I think that if the first sin was the disobedient action of, of eating from the tree, I think the second disobedient action was Adam being passive, all right? Now, I'm speaking of this because I'm guilty of this. So, and, and I'm actually gonna say a few things during the sermon that I want y'all to know that I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you guys this morning, all right? But what we see here is we start to see this hot potato that takes place between Adam and Eve. Adam first starts off by blaming God and blaming the woman, right? Which is amazing to me. I don't enjoy blaming my wife for anything, let alone blaming the God of the universe. And this guy does it in one statement. And then God turns around, kind of like a, an episode of Law and Order, starts questioning Eve, and Eve basically says, no, it's the serpent's fault. Everybody is casting blame on somebody else here. Now, I think there's a reason why um, they're doing this. I think that it has to do with their shame, all right? They start doing this blame game because they know that they've messed up. Deep down, they know that they're wrong, okay? See, shame is when you're in the presence of somebody else, right, and you don't want them to know who you really are. Okay, it causes division and it eventually will lead you to a place of solitary confinement, all right? Shame is the lie that you tell yourself that you can solve and fix it on your own when in reality you need somebody else to help you. Adam and Eve here have led themselves down the path to shame. Verse 21, we see grace. I'm gonna skip forward here a little bit. It said, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So in the midst of all of this chaos and in, in, in the midst of all this disobedience, God takes these um, rudimentary, thrown together clothes that they've used to cover their shame up with and he's essentially replaced it by covering them with comfortable garments in order to cover their shame up for them. And now I don't think you can talk about this subject here without pointing out the goodness and the grace of God here, right? I think that we see this continued through the life of Jesus and the fact that he sent his son to die on the cross for us because the truth is, and what I'm pointing out to you guys this morning is that this bloodline from Adam and Eve is something that continues to us today. So God sent Jesus, he died on the cross for us and that is our pathway to be made right before him. But the truth is, for those of us that are believers, if we've entered into that relationship with Jesus, our life has continued and our struggle has continued. 
On a daily basis, we attempt to try to be as holy as we can, to try to miss, to try to hit the mark instead of miss it, okay? But here's the deal. If we're a room full of people that know that they're broken, that know that they're dirty deep down, then why is it that we continually act like everything is okay? Why is it we walk in to this place here and we put smiles on our faces and we try to act like everything is perfect? We wanna be Facebook perfect, I think, right? Now, some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some of y'all are anti-Facebook. I think that's good, okay? I'm on Facebook. And the truth is you find yourself going to other people's Facebook pages and you click on it and you see people going on exotic uh, vacations to these great locations and you see these smiling kids and they're in their pictures together and it looks perfect and they're posting about how much they love their spouse and there's encouraging quotes and you see all of this great stuff and you think, man, they have their scene together. I wish I could, I wanna travel like they do. I wanna smile in photos like they do. And look, I'm guilty of this. If you go to my Facebook page right now, you're gonna see a picture of three dogs in front of a Christmas tree. And they look perfect, man. They're sitting there perfectly still. And they're just, it's great. It's a great picture, okay? And people come up to me and they say, man, I saw that picture of your dogs. You have the best dogs. My dogs are awful. I could never get my dogs to possibly pose for a picture like that. But... The reality is that was 40 minutes of work right there, okay, and about two pounds of treats. And that was about 172 different photos that we took. And if you look at any of those other pictures, it's pure and utter chaos. But for that one moment, thing was perfect, right? But we all do this. We all walk in the door and we all put on smiles. Um, We fight with our wives in the car on the way here. And then we walk in holding hands and we act like our relationship is perfect, okay? And then we get in our car and then we drive home and we fight the whole way home. But if we all know that we're broken, if we all know that we're not perfect, then why do we continually do this? Why don't we lift each other up? During my first year of marriage, um, it was tough. I'm gonna be real honest with you guys. My wife's in the room. She was that beautiful fox that was up here singing in front of you guys, all right? She's here. She, she, she is gonna hear this, but our first year of marriage was tough. It was difficult, okay? And I remember talking to people that um, were married before me, and they all said, man, first year's perfect, wonderful. It's great. Everything's going to be awesome, right? Christian guys are like, man, the honeymoon, right? Everything's going to be wonderful. But then I'd go home and I'd be like, man, there must be something wrong with what I've got going on because things aren't perfect. Things are tough. You've got two people with unique lifestyles merging themselves together, and it ends up just becoming chaos, right, as you try to figure each other out. And then one night while we're sitting at dinner, there was another couple sitting across from us, and I made the statement. I said, man, you know, the first year of marriage is tough, and their faces lit up, and they sighed real heavy, and they said, yeah, man, it is really tough. And we spent the rest of the evening talking about the struggle, and we started growing off of one another. We started to learn from one another. But when we come here, we don't share with one another. We don't confess the struggle to one another. We don't talk about the doubt and distrust and the desires that we have that are leading us to miss the mark. And it's crazy. It's crazy to me. It's as crazy to me is cleaning your house before the cleaning lady gets there, okay? People do that. But if you're gonna pay somebody to clean up your filth, if it's already been paid for, then then why are you trying to do it on your own? We laugh, but it's what we do here, right? We try to come here and we try to clean up before God as if he doesn't know how dirty we really are. And my question to you this morning is, what would it look like if we started to become real with each other? What would it look like if we started to open up to one another? 
Um, in boot camp, when you start to struggle and your arms start to drop, the drill instructors do something pretty interesting. What they'll do is, is they turn to the recruit that's standing next to you, and they make him put his arms up under yours in order, in order to hold it up. Now, it's, um, it's a pretty genius tool, okay, because it breeds accountability, right? Because at that point, you don't want to fail for the person that's next to you. You start to try harder because you don't want to let that guy down. And the truth is that during that particular exercise, that might come easy for him, okay? You're struggling with it in that particular moment, but there's going to come a day where that guy's going to struggle, and the guy next to him is going to struggle, right? And you're going to be able to move up alongside him, and you're going to be able to lift him up. You're going to be able to raise his arms for him in order to keep him from struggling, That's what I think the church is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like people that come together that recognize how filthy we are so we can lift each other up. In Hebrews 2.18, it's talking about Jesus, and it says this. It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. See, in biblical community, our suffering and our temptations are something that we should be proud of, right? Being able to get through those things and landing on the other side of repentance is something that we should be able to take into our relationships with other believers so that way we are, in a, we are able to, be, to lift them up and to be able to mentor them. Now, what does this look like, though? This means that we have to get into community and, and we've got to get into certain types of relationships that have trust, okay, that have honesty with one another. There's a certain sense of confession and repentance that needs to take place. Um, you have to be authentic, right? There has to be true community. So, The question I have for you today is, is where are you on that scale, all right? Where are you on that anatomy scale of sin? Are you in a place where you're starting to doubt and you're starting to distrust? Have you gotten to a place where you find yourself desiring after something that you know is only gonna lead you to a path that isn't going to end well? I think the answer to that is yes. I know it is, okay? And so my challenge to you moving forward, these next few weeks, Shannon's gonna be talking on authentic community. He's going to be talking about what it looks like to be part of a church where you start to come alongside people and you're able to grow with one another. And so what I challenge you to do, men, I challenge you to find another man that you can open up with, that you can learn from. Women, find another woman that you can talk to. Couples, partner with other couples. And now this doesn't look like us finding someone that's exactly like us, okay? Because their point of view is going to be exactly what our point of view is. That means younger people, find someone that's older, okay? That means older people find someone that's younger that you can mentor. And as we move into these next few weeks, what I want you to do is is try to, to partner with some people so that way we can become a church that can struggle together and can struggle well together.